that's something that the pandemic did for us was it, like the reason why mom rage, why we talked about it to some, to some extent anyway, is that we were talking about our homes. Like everyone was just talking about what was happening inside the home because that was the only place we were allowed to be for a while. And so suddenly the home was like a talking point. And, and I think that being able to talk about mom rage and talk about what's happening in the home, like is like, a major step towards liberation because if we can't talk about it then we're just like living in the shame closet like not talking about our anger and feeling like the worst hello and welcome to the feminist mom podcast i'm your host aaron spar i'm a licensed therapist feminist and mother of two join me and my guests each week as we chat about what it's like mothering in today's society We'll point out the double standards mothers face and unpack the conflicting societal messages we receive. We'll name out loud how the patriarchy and other systems of oppression impact our experiences of motherhood. This podcast is for you if you appreciate honest and smart conversations that will validate your experiences, promote discussion, and empower you to mother on your own terms. Welcome back to the Feminist Mom Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Today, I am going to be sharing a conversation that I had with Minna Dubin. Minna is the author of Mom Rage, The Everyday Crisis of Modern Motherhood, out now from Sealed Press. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Salon, Parents, The Philadelphia Inquirer, Romper, The Forward, and Literary Mama. She's the recipient of an Artist Enrichment Grant from the Kentucky Foundation for Women, as a leading feminist voice on Mom Rage, Minna has appeared on MSNBC, Good Morning America, The Tamron Hall Show, NBC10 Boston, and NPR. She lives in Berkeley, California with her husband and two kids. I was super thrilled to be talking to Minna Dubin. I had been following along um, with her career and the work she was doing, specifically talking about Mom Rage. Since early the pandemic, she had um, a few articles out in the New York Times about mom rage, and it was really the first time I had heard anyone really talking out loud about the experience that I think is super common of feeling completely out of control maybe or just completely overwhelmed with anger and you know how shameful that can feel it's something that i know really scared me when i became a mom that i could experience that level of emotion i think a big part of motherhood is that you experience a whole range of emotions that at least for me i didn't experience to quite those degrees um, before. And rage was certainly the one that was the most uncomfortable for me personally, and one that I think is really hard for us to talk about. So um, I've been really grateful for the conversation that Minna has been sharing. And um, really, she has been really the one of the people who I think has really been talking about, or at least was part of my own journey of awakening to the cultural um, reasons for some of the symptoms that we experience as mothers. So she talks about how 
Um, mom rage is really a societal problem, not just an individual problem. And that's been really useful to really think about and to unpack. And for me, something that I, I use with clients and that I share online, um, not just about mom rage, but many parts of being a mom. I've been a huge fan of Minas for a while, and so I'm so thrilled to be sharing this conversation I had with Minna Dubin. Hello, welcome. Um, I'm here speaking with Minna Dubin. Um, Minna, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, this is so exciting. I've come across you, I think, um, probably during the beginning of the pandemic, you had an article, I think, in the New York Times that I think, looking back, actually, it was re-released in the pandemic, right? You had actually written it in 2019, but yeah. the pandemic became, I think, a time when folks were really thinking about uh, parenting, mothering, and sort of the, the experiences that mothers were in, and you spoke about, I know this isn't all you talk about, but you spoke about mom rage, and seemed to really strike a chord. I became really interested in your work and been following you and listening to you on other podcasts. So I'm really excited. I think this is a really important and difficult topic um, that I'd love to just talk to you about. Um, but before we get into that, do you want to just tell me a little bit about yourself and kind of add to the introduction? Sure. Um, I would say... Uh, I'm a mom and a writer. I live in Berkeley with my husband and my two kids who are six and 10. Um, I have been writing about really about identity for a long time. And then once I became a mom 10 years ago, I like really focused in on motherhood and was just, um, I think I was sort of writing to save myself and also just very fascinated by the way that motherhood worked in the world, the way I was being seen, the way I was being treated, the way I felt, the ways that like motherhood felt very private. Like mm -hmm. I hadn't, I don't think I really understood anything about motherhood. Like, I just think that motherhood is like sort of like under this shroud of mystery, except for like this very like smiley vision of it that's like plastered in, in media and so what I was experiencing just felt like uh I don't know how to describe it but it just kind of blew me away that this is mm -hmm. what it felt like like I just had no context for it which is weird right because everyone mm -hmm. become I mean not everyone becomes a mom but like so many people so many birthing people become you know become mothers and it's just it just really blew me away. So I focused on motherhood. And then that particular essay that was in the New York Times called The Rage Mothers Don't Talk About um, went viral, as you said, in 2019. And then they redid it. They republished uh, it in 2020. And it uh, struck a chord even harder. And I think it's important that it was published in 2019 first, not 2020, because mom rage is not pandemic specific. Mm -hmm. I think it just became a talking point in the culture during the pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that was important that it wasn't, wasn't just that the pandemic was somehow causing this like sudden discussion of mom rage. It was something that was, I think, probably more deep down and um, like hidden, as you say, for so many moms. I mean, as a, as a therapist, talking with moms, it's not something that is often the first thing mothers will even bring up because it's so um, shameful. So um, 
yeah, yeah, I think you really struck a chord. And now you've written a book to sort of continue that discussion. Um, do you want to tell yes. us a little bit about, about the book? Sure. I have it right here. I just got my <laughs> copies in the mail, my hardback. I'm very happy. Um, it's called Mom Rage, The Everyday Crisis of Modern Motherhood. And it is, it's nonfiction. It's like, uh, it's part memoir. So I tell my story of maternal anger and how I um, experience, started to experience mom rage when I became a mom and then sort of how it showed up in my, in my home and in my life. And then how I, you know, the many ways I tried to, to deal with it. Um, and then it's also um, full of reporting. I interviewed 50 moms across the country and from around the world because I was very curious to see uh, what motherhood was like in other countries because I was getting emails from moms from around the world. And so I, I had a suspicion that mom rage was not just an American problem. Um, and then it's also full of social critique. I did a lot of research. And it's basically the first comprehensive book on the topic of mom rage. It really describes what it is, why we have it, and what we can do about it, both in the home and on a societal level. Yeah, I remember, I think I, I had taken a couple of little quotes from you from other podcasts or things that you had talked about and put them on my Instagram at some point, yeah. like a while ago. And I remember <laughs> you really pointing out, right, like, it, this is a societal problem, mom rage, we tend to think about all kinds of m mental health problems as individual problems when... Right. Really, I mean, I think one of my goals is to help us really think about the sort of societal problems that are that are affecting us and to be able to sort of look beyond our own experiences. And so you really, I think, um, made that connection really, really early for me. And I remember sort of, yeah, that that makes sense. I wonder if you can talk just a little bit more about why why we think that it might be a more of a societal problem in, in not just an individual problem. Yeah. Well, when I first wrote that the rage mothers don't talk about for the New York Times, I it has no societal overlay. It, I do not talk about society in that piece because I didn't have that uh, awareness when I wrote mm -hmm. that piece. And so the the awareness came from the response that I got. I just got so many messages from mothers from around the world that I was like, oh, this is not a me problem. And I think that that gets mirrored like in moms across the world. I think that moms, um, I think there's so much pressure on mothers to be, you know, quote unquote, perfect, mm -hmm. that when we, that when we fail, <laughs> we are sure that it must be something wrong with us. And part of that, a big part of that is about the, the messaging, the public messaging around motherhood and what mothers are supposed to be. And so, um, and society likes that, you know, that messaging because then they don't have any culpability if we blame it, if we blame it on moms. Um, and, and even though now I think like years in, it feels very like rudimentary to say mom rage is a societal problem. It's actually still really important to like keep saying that and keep amplifying that um, because mothers are so like just deeply neglected in our society from like a policy standpoint to the way that the nuclear family is set up and the ways that partners, especially husbands, don't support moms. And even now, like even even like for like feminist moms who have husbands who may even identify as feminists, right? Like they're still not doing their share of the work for the most part. And, you know, I did mom rage workshops and 
like the message that I kept getting from moms of what they wanted was for their husbands to make dinner or do the dishes. Like mm-hmm. it was still, we're still there. Like yeah, it's still we are. pretty, mm-hmm. pretty like basic where we're at. So. Totally. Yeah, we are, we are still there. And that's, I think it does sometimes take looking outside of your own home to kind of compare notes and see what the other what's going on in other families and you're right there is this like sense of we're all kind of isolated and we don't talk about you know the 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 bad stuff or the unattractive parts of of family life and it sounds like you really got to compare notes with lots of moms and see like these similar themes come up which is really powerful right and I think is a step towards us like towards the revolution, right? Towards us being able to say, wait a second, this is not, this. Um, it's not my fault. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that the pandemic did for us was it, like the reason why Mom Rage, why we talked about it to some, to some extent anyway, is that we were talking about our homes. Like everyone was just talking about what was happening inside the home because that was the only place we were allowed to be for a while. And so suddenly the home was like a talking point. Yeah. And and I think that being able to talk about mom rage and talk about what's happening in the home, like, is like a major step towards liberation. Because if we can't talk about it, then we're just like living in the shame closet, like not talking about our anger and feeling like the worst. Totally. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. Like the people without kids were making bread. Right. Like that. They were they were cooking bread and they're pu- making doing puzzles and and parents who had kids on top of them while trying to you know, work and live and all of that, I remember feeling like, I wish I could make bread. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. so the, even just like, the contrast. <laughs> You're like, great. I'm really proud of you and your sourdough <laughs> starter, but I can't breathe. Yeah. You yes. Know? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I did just um, speak with Amanda Monti for another episode about feeling touched out. And, and to me, that's really connected, at least in part to to mom rage, right? It feels like the touched out kind of comes first maybe. And then the mom rage is a result. Um, I'm curious yeah. if you have thoughts about that. Um, I mean, I think that our books are, are completely in conversation with each other. We both talk about each other's work in the book, in our books. Oh. Um, I talk about a piece she wrote about drinking and drinking as a way out of of the house when, or, you know, a way out of the situation when you can't actually leave the house. Um, yeah. Because mom rage is not always externalized. Sometimes it's internalized and drinking or substance use is a way that we can self harm. Um, when we're feeling mom rage, when we, when we're not, cause not everyone yells, like not everyone's a yeller. Yeah. Right. So there's other ways that it comes out. Um, and I do think that, I think that feeling touched out or feeling, you know, in, in the very like, that one particular way to think about being touched out of like kids all over you. And you just like, it's about like, just not getting a break. You're just like constantly on call and not, and like, not just that you're doing labor, even though that physical stuff could also be seen as labor, especially nursing, but like your body doesn't even feel like it belongs to you. Like when you're a mother, there are times when you feel like your time doesn't belong to you, you know, maybe your career doesn't belong to you because you don't have one or it's on pause. Your body doesn't belong to you. There's so much, her book talks so much about consent. Um, 
and I think motherhood in general is there's a lot of questions around consent because we don't know, I think most of us, what exactly we're saying yes to when mm. we decide to become mothers. I think there's a lot of coercion, in, especially in American motherhood. Uh, so I think that motherhood in general is a consent issue right now. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's a good little like soundbite right there. Yeah, mother, it's it's true. I mean, I think even talking about right the cost of motherhood. I mean, particularly in thinking about America, how expensive it is to uh, just live, and um, you know, the village idea, right, is obviously something we're talking about and is really lacking, and so we're. Um, I don't think we realize that we're jumping into something that's extremely expensive, extremely actually impossible to really pull off, I think, without a lot of struggle, you know, in different yeah. ways for different families. This is the pinnacle of womanhood is is having a baby. And I think actually even pregnancy is like, that's the pinnacle. That's where you're seen, you're celebrated, look at this baby. And then, and then what happens, right? The, right. The baby comes and it's like this fall. Um, so anyway, that I I guess I think about like you're just sort of feeling like kind of duped into a role and then feeling angry or rage. Maybe we can distinguish the two, but feeling like there's an injustice happening. That's how I, when I think of anger, I feel like I think of social justice. I think of this is something's not okay. My boundaries are being crossed or I'm being... Um, you know, taken advantage of. So I wonder if you could maybe just speak to that piece of it, or are there other other pieces of this mom rage that you want to highlight? Well, I mean, when there's so much pressure to become a mom, I think there's, I think there is an, an incredible amount of pressure. I mean, all of us who have friends who are not moms, who want to be moms, like know that pressure, like they're just like, it is so intense, the need to become a mother. And part of that, so much of that is societal pressure. And so you like finally do this thing that like, you don't even realize you're pressured to because for many uh, women, you think that you want it right? You're like, I've wanted to be a mom. I mean, for me personally, I can say that I wanted to be a mom forever. I never, ever in my entire life questioned being a mother. It was always something I wanted and I still want it. But the motherhood that I walked into was just not what I imagined. I didn't, I did not understand how much labor it was and how much, uh, how, how much I would be doing like so much. It's just like, it, it is just like nonstop. And then, you know, for me personally, having a child who is neurodivergent and had like multiple diagnoses and was like kicked out of multiple schools as like a three-year-old and a four-year-old and a five-year-old. And like no one, there was no one to like tell me what to do. And it was like a full-time job getting him the services that he needed. And like, I was in such a privileged position to be able to do that. But moms who don't have like that time luxury because they're working don't have that, you know, they're not able to get their kids that support. And so the the societal neglect of mothers is, is really partially about the societal neglect of children, right? Because children aren't getting what they need because we don't know how to get them what they need. I'm going off on a tangent. <laughs> It's so, but it's so relevant. I mean, it's so relevant, right? There's, I think there's all these intersecting 
um, sort of ways that the oppression is happening, right? Like right. You're, you're sort of naming a bunch of different um, reasons why, yes, women, children, folks uh, with lower uh, financial privilege. Obviously, we, we also know like you and I are both white women, right? Yep. And sort of this idea of like the struggles that now privileged women are having, like that isn't the same even experience of folks of color who are also dealing with oppression based yeah. on race yeah. and all of that. So yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty bleak. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and that's really real about privilege and how it makes it easier, even as it's so hard. Like I remember the, fir- the second time that my son was, uh, you know, told that this was not a good fit, quote unquote, right at the preschool. <sighs> And I fought it, you know, and I like, it was a co-op preschool and I like found a loophole and went and asked the entire board to come as witnesses and like came with my, and I was like, I'm going to hire a behaviorist and which is like, you know, I just like threw money and like, and time at the problem and was able to like fight it, fight it and felt so victorious and also was like highly aware that like, if I did not have all of this privilege, this would not be happening. Mm-hmm. I would just have to find another school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah. That's so hard that that's what it takes. Yeah. And, and also I'll say that like, it was really important to me in, in the, for this book to interview moms that did, weren't, that were not living my life, you know, moms that had, different, you know, racial background, different socioeconomic background, lived in a different part of America. Um, And what I found is basically that while the experience can be different and these factors do affect your rage, that mom rage is like equal opportunity, that mothers are neglected across the board. It doesn't actually, and you would think that like, well, if you have all the privileges, you'll be fine, but actually no, it doesn't like, it just, it is, it is across the board. and it just, it, I think the experience just changes because depending on the culture that you're part of, the feelings about motherhood can change. The way that we view mothers or the way that family is constructed. Um, but all of these people, no matter what culture they're part of, still live in America, or at least, you know, the Americans, um, that have the same media messaging. Like we're all still getting the same messaging about what mothers should be and what motherhood should look like and what families should look like, even if we can't meet those expectations, mm-hmm. which nobody can. Nobody can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I guess I, I'm kind of curious just to sort of back up a little bit because, you know, you talk yeah. about your experience. Um, sure. And one thing I've been curious about is like, you know, how – motherhood has affected kind of our our politics or our sort of view of the world and so I'm curious like were you a feminist would you say you are a feminist is that something you you identified with prior to motherhood and did motherhood change that at all for you yeah I mean I definitely identified as a feminist I would say like a raging feminist even before (laughs) uh I became a mom um and I think that motherhood affected my feminism in that I didn't like in my personal life as like a white educated middle-class woman married to a man I didn't have a lot like 
about my very private life, I felt, to like fight back about. And then I think that motherhood, like I've come to realize basically that motherhood is like one of the final frontiers of feminism. That like women get to move forward, but like, but if you become a mom, really your place is still in the home. And so I don't think I ever even like thought about motherhood when I was like, you know, a 25 year old feminist. I wasn't, you know, motherhood Mm -hmm. wasn't even on my brain. It didn't have anything to do with feminism. And now Mm -hmm. I feel like it is one of the largest parts of feminism um, Mm -hmm. is thinking about how, how do we have, how do you become a mother and still get to be your entire self that you want to be? Which, which, which really to me is feminism. Feminism is just about getting to like live the life you want to, to live basically, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I think that motherhood is like, is one of the last pieces of feminism that we're dealing with. I mean, mm-hmm. also, you know, especially when we're thinking about intersectional feminism, you know, definitely race and class and all of that is really important also and is something that we are still struggling with. But um, I think motherhood has definitely been left out of that picture. Be- because like, when you think about the feminists in the 70s, particularly the white feminists of the 70s who were talking about uh, going to work, you know, that was like the thing to do. And the black feminists of that time were not talking about going to work, right? Work was not like the goal. And I think for white feminism, getting to work and being paid equally was sort of the goal. But to me, I feel like we need to talk about what's happening in, in the home and that that's like, you you can't be like okay i'm a 2023 feminist at work but then i go home and i'm still the one cooking all the meals i'm still the one doing all the labor i'm still the one like researching summer camps thinking about like mm-hmm. 7 months ahead like who's our vacation i'm writing the thank you notes i'm calling the mother in law like you know what i mean doing all that invisible labor that we don't talk about like we're still back in the 1950s in terms of labor in the home right because when we white women got to go go to work and try to be girl bosses in quotes right that that labor didn't go away and that didn't right no we didn't teach men that oh this is actually going to be your you're going to help uh meet us and take off that labor or let's restructure society in some way that doesn't just rely on the nuclear family to you know that we're all still set up with this idea that you kind of still need that one person who's managing the home, doing all of that labor that never went away. So it was great. You get to do it all right. The, I think of the jingle of like, she, you know, go and what does it get the bacon and fry it up in a pan, right? Like (laughs) we can do both, you know? Um, And it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel liberating. It doesn't feel um, feasible to do it all. Right. And, and like this conversation, I feel like, you know, this conversation in some ways in terms of like, you know, it was about money for, you know, there's wages for housework, right. Which was from the 1970s, I think. And then Johnny Tillman, who was leading the NWRO, um, which was the national welfare rights organization in the sixties, um, which was about getting, you know, women in the house paid just for the house, just for like being moms, right? So it wasn't about like leaving the house, that that org. And so like, 
all of these, like all, this conversation about like valuing our work in the home, whether it's whether it's monetarily valued or just valued in the culture, um, you know, it, it has been, I feel like going in ebbs and ebbs and flows like for for decades. And mm-hmm. it's I feel like it's back up. We're back up <laughs> talking about it right now. Like there is definitely a wave right now of talking about care work and how we um, devalue care work. And do you think that that is because of the pandemic or were you noticing that prior to that point? Um, I was not noticing it prior to that point. That doesn't mean it wasn't happening. It might just mean that I was not cued into it. Um, I think that the pandemic definitely spurred that, mm-hmm. uh, spurred that wave just because, you know, as I said, everyone was talking about what was happening in the home. And so like this critical lens just dropped down, I think, for people mm-hmm. during the pandemic. For, for It was already dropped down for lots of people. But I think for people who it wasn't dropped down for, it dropped down. Like same with mom rage. Like I think people already were experiencing mom rage, but like even people who hadn't been suddenly were, you know, it was just like, yeah. I think the pandemic just like really uh, just kind of like opened up like took the roof, I don't know what the metaphor is, took the roof off the house or whatever of mm-hmm. motherhood in a way. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because there were lots of men who were also in the home and seeing the work that was happening and see, yeah. you know, you know, my, my husband, we were all stuck together trying to figure out how to manage it. And so it's interesting, like now thinking about how there's so much push to get everyone back to work so to speak, back out of the home. Like, I think there was maybe some hope that we'd learn something, that we'd figure out how to incorporate our children into our lives in in ways that I think were more sort of integrated, more fluid. And yet it's like, nope, let's go back. I don't know, maybe that's a little bit off topic, but I'm curious, like, do you notice that too? I mean, okay, I'm having two thoughts. I mean, one is about the pandemic and how like, men CEOs and presidents and bosses were on zoom screens in their you know in their bedrooms just like I am now (laughs) and they had like there were kids screaming in the background like all of these CEOs became dads before our eyes right there Mm -hmm. and I just like to me that was amazing like the labor of the home the like the dirt and the noise like it could not be contained to keep them separate from their home life the way that they that they get to be when they go to that men get to be when they go to work so like I thought that was actually an amazing part of the pandemic like that switch but Um, it didn't seem to like did has that shifted do you I mean do you notice that I don't know if it's shifted I have heard that there have been like a record uh a record return of women returning to work Hmm. And part of that is that workplaces have uh, more lenient policies around being able to be home, to work Mm -hmm, from home. mm -hmm. And so statistically, it's looking good in terms of women going to work right now. But I don't, that doesn't actually say like that they're not going to work and also still doing all of the labor at home. Like it doesn't mean anything to me that they're going to work. Right, right. Yeah. Right. The labor that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know, but I doubt it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's 
that's what I, I, I hear into people's homes too as a therapist and hear about, you know, work with really, you know, uh, career focused. Not that that's the only way to to be, but like I folks who are surgeons and, you know, lawyers and, you know, have these really competitive jobs and are still doing all of that labor when their partners are even at the same level or, or not at the same level. Um, so yeah, I think that that's still this, the expectation is that this yeah. is still stuff that women have internalized, right? So some of this, like, right, there's the external patriarchy and then there's what we've internalized. I, I know that's something that I'm often trying to unlearn and sort of, um, you know, figure out kind of what's 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 my belief versus what is from the society. I'm curious if that's yeah. something you've noticed in yourself, ways that you've internalized the patriarchy and are trying to undo that. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I, I think I've realized or discovered in my own life and then also from interviewing moms for this book, um, and it made me think of it when you started talking about queerness, was that the society is set up for one parent to be the 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 breadwinner, the one who goes out to an, a job and works, and the other one to stay home. Everything is set up that way from like the fact that there's no childcare during the summers, right? The fact that uh, school ends at two thirty and work ends at five. Like everything is set up for one parent to yes. not really be working, and so that affects all all families that have two parents. And it affects mm-hmm. all all families even that have one parent, but when there's two parents. And so what I noticed um, in doing my interviews is that even when they were, even if it was a same sex couple, they were often still falling into those roles where one took on the like, you know, uh, stereotypical mother role was more of the primary parent and mm-hmm. one was more of the worker, the one, the breadwinner. Mm-hmm. And so those, everything in society like sets us up to take on that dynamic in the home, even if we don't want to, even if it's not a man and a woman, like it is just the way that like our society is set up for us. Right. Like even, even though you might think it'd be more egalitarian if both people are the same sexes and they would not have to fall into these particular um, gendered roles where the way our society sets up, it's like, well, one person has to be the default and one person has to be the primary, like, bread earner, right? Breadwinner. Yeah. So, yeah, we're still kind of like, okay, well, who are you going to be and who am I going to be? And sometimes we don't even ask, we don't even ask those questions. It just sort of right. happens. Right. And I think that in, in queer partnerships, the difference is that they do ask those questions more. There mm-hmm. is more of a discussion about who's going to do what tasks in the home. Um, in terms of like, I hate taking out the trash. How about you do the trash and I'll do the this? Whereas like right. in uh, different sex homes, a lot of the role and like labor, um, div- the division of labor is not discussed. It just like takes place, like, mm-hmm. and which, which is true in my home as well. Um, you know, we never really talked about, you know, I'm a writer who doesn't make a ton of money, you know, and my partner is a psychiatrist who makes all of the money basically mm-hmm. for our home. And so, but we never talked about like, okay, when it's a school holiday on Monday, who's going to take care of the kids? Like, do I automatically do it? And I don't get to write because my writing doesn't make money. Like we never actually had that conversation 
It just happened. And mm-hmm. I would know when school holidays were because he didn't need to know when school holidays were because they didn't affect his life. But I was like, oh, we have five school holidays this week. I care because that means I'm my work collapses those days. Right. Totally. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Right. Even I think of things even that are like extra, you know, every time I see, you know, oh, they're they're recruiting someone for the PTA. Right. I'm always like. I wonder how many men feel guilty for not participating, right? Like this. Yeah, totally. Funny you should bring that up because I have like a whole thing in this book about the PTA and that I think the PTA is like this unspoken labor. It's part of the labor of motherhood that the society absolutely requires for moms to be involved. And there's, you know, it's not, it's, it's called voluntary, but there's so much pressure and like you feel like you're or many moms feel like they're like a bad mother if they're not more involved in the kids schools and then the kids see other moms in the class and they're like why don't you ever come into my class right like the Mm -hmm. pressure is from Mm -hmm. all sides and it's like well if the school was properly funded because children were properly taken care of we wouldn't need moms to be doing don't like donor like fundraisers for after school programming Right. Right. Like right. all of it. Like, it all, like there is so much society requires the unpaid labor of mothers to function in all areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm hearing even on the other end, like this conversation of, well, you know, our, our parents, our boomer parents, grandparents, you know, are they, they're not helping. Right. And I feel so many, so, so torn about that. Cause again, it, then it's like, often grandmothers who we're, we're talking about when we're thinking about who's going to help out and be the village. It's it's women still having to be the nurturers and caretakers, right. uh, you know, and sort of expected to, again, donate this like free labor. So it's yes. always it's always women who we are expecting these things from. Yes, it is always women. I also talk about that. I also have this thing about grandparents because I like you know, I think every mom, especially especially moms who don't have grandparents who are like, give me the kid for the weekend, you know, feel jealous of their friends yes. who do have those grandparents who are like, we're going to Portugal for the week, like our family is going to keep the kid. And I'm just like, who are these mythical like family that you have? I, why don't, you know, and, the, and then I do the yes. why don't I have that, right? Even though I have, you know, the best parents and the best in-laws like they're amazing but like that's just not who they are they don't want to spend their time doing that and you're right it is absolutely the grandmothers it is always the grandmothers and not the grandfathers right Mm -hmm. and so like even when you're done motherhood then you become a grandmother and your daughter is like because of the societal neglect of mothers the daughter needs you and the daughter's like please mom and then you feel bad but you're like can I just rest yes like when do I get to rest so right. like I both like I'm so like why can't you take my kids and also like you shouldn't have to take my kids. Mhm. You know. Mhm. Right, I think our society really puts all of this pressure on relationships. Strain it like strains are these relationships because we're all just trying to survive and we're we're doing it in this like desperate way and so I think this is where so much conflict comes yeah with intergenerationally with grandparents but also with partners. I mean even male partners who are in in the patriarchy in the system who who want to maybe do better and and you know we have a generation still of dads who are who are doing better who are doing more childcare who are more involved yes. right than their parents or their fathers and 
you know, sometimes are really trying, but in, again, a lot of ways, you know, they, they don't have paternity leave. They don't have, they're pulled away from the home um, and taught that that's where their value is. So it cre- it creates a lot of conflict and tension, um, sure. I think. Sure, and, and if they don't get, like, if, if their company offers them paternity leave, but only at like 75% of their salary, you know what I mean? Like, and they're the breadwinner because that's how society set up for them to be the breadwinner. Like then they can't take their full paternity leave. Like it's, everything is set up for this to happen, you know? And so that's where like the, the policy comes in that we need for, for paid family leave and not just for like three weeks, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we've been talking about how how we sort of set up women, set up mothers to, um, you know, maybe be in a position to experience rage. Even the idea of mom rage, I've heard folks kind of even talk about whether they like that term. Mm-hmm. You know, there's yeah. like discuss like why isn't it just rage or what, you know? Can you just talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I think there's two things in there. Like one is separating mom rage from what could be called dad rage and and what and one argument which is the argument that i'm more sort of care about i guess i could be the um you know mom is it's sort of a gendered term and so if we were to say parent rage it would include non-binary people right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but and I, you know i i go into this in the prologue in my book why i'm choosing the word mom and part of that is that I, I think that anyone can mother, that mothering mm-hmm. is actually not like a gendered job. Anyone ca- can do the all encompassing labor that mm-hmm. is motherhood. So it's about like, it's about the all encompassing nature of it when I say mother. Um, but it does feel important to like that mom is gendered also because mom rage is so steeped in, in, a patriarchal culture. It's about patriarchy. It's about mm-hmm. misogyny. And so if we take away the mom and just say parent labor, it really, to me, takes uh, like the heart of it out. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I use the term mom. Um, I don't, it's important to say mom rage and not dad rage or parent rage because parent rage would include dads. Like to me, mom is about everyone that's not dad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Basically, like in my I'm including non-binary people when I right. say mom, um, you know, no matter whether even if you don't, I, even if you don't use the term mom, if you use yeah. like Baba or like any other moniker to me, mom rage is all the people except for dads. Right. Um, and, you know, dad rage. It doesn't it's not the same. It doesn't mean that dads can't f- get rageful. It doesn't mean that dads can't get angry. But the expectations the like unbelievable expectations of mothers doesn't exist for fathers. And so they're not experiencing that kind of pressure. And also the way that we experience our anger is different because dads don't feel the same kind of, men don't feel the same kind of shame around Mm -hmm. their anger that women are taught to feel. Mm -hmm. And men don't get vilified for their anger the way Mm -hmm. that women get vilified. And so not only do we forgive our, our husbands their anger. Like when my husband yells at our kid, he forgives himself. He's like, oh, well, he was being, he was being totally unreasonable. And I forgive my husband because I'm like, oh, well, you know, our, our kid was being totally unreasonable. Like we mm-hmm. all forgive the men their rage, but for mothers, the opposite happens. We, we don't think, we think of rage as being a character flaw for women. And right. for men, 
anger is about uh, is is situational. It's like, oh, it was someone else's fault. That was a really annoying situation. You know, mm-hmm. it's not the guy's fault. And so the like the gender dynamics of anger in our culture really change the way that we talk about the way that we can think about mom rage and dad rage. And also because fatherhood is not the pinnacle of manhood. Like it, being an angry dad mm-hmm. is just being like an alpha male. Whereas because womanhood is the pinnacle, no, because motherhood is the pinnacle of womanhood and anger, angry is the worst thing a woman can be really. And if you're an angry mother, that's like the worst. That's the, that's the worst thing you can possibly be. You're failing in all. You're failing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. failing at life basically is how it's set up. Whereas mm-hmm. like angry men, like they just get to be CEOs. Yeah, they're rewarded and yeah. and normalized. And if you think about the sitcom dynamics, we see you know like the 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 angry, resentful, nagging. You know that's always like painted really in an ugly way. Versus like the angry dad who's kind of funny. You kind of ignore him, or okay, that's just my dad. Like there's we can excuse we can excuse um, men in that way. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's funny because in, in my in my family, I I cannot I can't stand when my husband gets angry. I I'm like you're not allowed to you're not allowed to to do that. And maybe some of that's because I, I it's like hard to let myself do that. I'm like well you don't mm. get to do it if I'm if I'm not allowed if I'm trying so hard to manage my rage, you don't how dare you let yours out? You know, um, uh-huh. which is kind of an interesting dynamic. I'm not I'm not as forgiving about it. Maybe because I'm so aware of, of yeah, the maybe struggle. So. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um okay, so I I think we're we're kind of getting, you know, to to the end here. I guess I want to just to sort of see if you have any final thoughts that maybe we didn't talk about regarding mom rage. I mean, I'm thinking that, you know, some listeners may be experiencing it now or or maybe, you know, this is like the first time they're really hearing someone talk about mom rage. Um maybe let them know like a little bit more about like what the book might kind of provide if they're sure. curious. Yeah. Um, the book, the book, I tried really hard in the book to, to focus on stories so that it felt really readable and I'm proud of it. Like it is not like, even though I did a lot of research and there's like, there's a lot to back up my claims in this book. It is, it's really a book of stories. Um, which I think is sort of is really what moms want is to feel not alone. I think that like no mom is going to read this book and not feel seen, which really is my goal is to like to give moms like a hug mm-hmm. <laughs> and some relief. Um, I do try, I, I'm trying to hold two things in this book. I'm trying to hold that like raging in your house sucks. Like it sucks for everyone. Mm-hmm. It sucks for you. It sucks for your family. Like I'm not saying ever that mom rage is like, okay you -hmm. know even though I think our rage is warranted Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's still not okay to like the feeling is warranted but actually like screaming at your family not a great idea right even though I don't think it's mom's fault right so like it's complicated I'm trying to I in the middle the middle three chapters I'm basically talking about um 
what I do, like what are things that I do, like what have I done to try and investigate my rage, to like learn more about it, to figure out what's under it, to figure out what my triggers are, to figure out like what are my physical tells that that say that I'm about to lose it so that I might recognize it before I do or maybe my partner might recognize it. Um, I talk about like, uh, I think the chapter is called Rescuing Your Partner from Enemy Territory Hmm. because mom rage tends to, um, you know, be a wedge between couples. Mm -hmm. And so, but your partner is actually the person who knows your rage the best probably besides you. Um, And so they actually have a lot of information and can be useful to you because once you're ramping up to explosion, you do not have the capacity to recognize that that's happening usually or to Mm -hmm. like slow yourself down. And so, um, I talk to, I I use other moms and my my own examples about like, what are some things that you do? How do you figure it out? So I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm both trying to like offer solutions for in the home and offer societal solutions because even if you, even if you master the art of, of not screaming, um, (laughs) or not, you know, internalizing your rage, like if the, if the societal architecture that neglects mothers doesn't change, we're never going to stop being furious. Mm-hmm. Right. So they both, they both need to be happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so I think my goal with the book really was to try and hold both of those truths and to offer the solutions that, um, that are working for me and are working for other mothers. Um, and that I think could work for the society and to, yeah, basically, uh, put those on in a in a book on a platter for you. <laughs> yeah, I think that's so helpful that you have both. We we can't, you know, parents really need some tools now, and so often are asking for like, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Like that is like the yeah. question, and that would be incomplete. And I think kind of gaslighty, right? To just say that you have all the all the tools and you're on your own to manage this when yeah. in a lot of ways like you're saying it's really it's actually pretty complicated it's uh um it's really hard to just you know yeah. do it on an individual level so i love that you address both i think both are needed yeah thanks and 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 in terms of the story like I'm I'm a I'm really not a self-help book kind of person. I just I'm I'm a little bit allergic to self-help stuff. Yeah. I'm allergic to parenting advice. Like anyone who's trying to tell me how to do anything, I just like I don't want to hear it. Yeah. I have like a rebel heart about that. Yeah. Um and so it felt, it would it would have felt very disingenuous I think for me to try and write like a self-help book for mom rage because I mean, who am I is sort of how I feel yeah. like, I don't know, I'm not going to tell you what to do. So telling it through story, like both through like, here's what I did. And here's what Maggie did this mom in like Tucson, Arizona, or like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, telling it through stories felt like it was a way for me to be like, to offer some some ideas, instead of being like, this is what you can do. You know, I really just didn't, I didn't want to tell moms what to do. Yeah, I mean, isn't that that's so interesting? The the idea of stories to me feels kind of like part of the village or community piece that people are missing is right having elders, right? Having like aunties yes. and you know sisters and women like sharing stories. Folks are going to you know social media and getting experts, right? Yes. And that's 
you know, there's pros and cons to that, like you're saying. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes that feels like someone's telling me what to do. And sometimes people f- feel like their their elders don't know anymore because the, the landscape, the parenting landscape has changed, right? So we yes. can kind of like, like, okay, well, that's how you did it back then, but now it's different. So I think that's, you're tapping into something people need is just a sense of other people are going through this or uh, there's a, some some collective that I'm a part of that, right, that sort of the human experience piece is helpful just to sort of see that you're not alone and then maybe see here's some ideas right that are not prescriptive it doesn't mean that you're failing if you don't do this thing yeah Yeah. and and also like statistics and like oh someone else published this and so that makes it you know true or something those are those are very like patriarchal white supremacist ideas of what is knowledge and what is correct and what is Mm. um what is right and it felt very like much more matriarchal sort of to to tell it through story because personal anecdotes and stories are also knowledge are also valuable and so I also I felt really important to highlight that yes I love that perfect Okay, great. Well, I'm super excited um, for your book to come out. Why don't you let us know kind of when it when it's coming out and um, kind of where people can find you? Sure. Um, it comes out September 19th. Uh, it's from Seal Press. You can pre-order it now or buy it anywhere you buy books. Um, you can find me at my website. I am at minadubin.com all of my book tour and pre-order and buying information is on there as well and i'm on instagram at minadubin wonderful thank you so much for being here min i appreciate it yay thanks for having me that's the show thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the feminist mom podcast thank you to my guest minadubin If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to subscribe and leave me a review to help me reach more feminist moms. You can find me on Instagram at feminist.mom.therapist or on my website, erinspartherapy.com. Until next time.